Okay, okay. That's enough having fun. Thank you all for coming out and joining us. Uh, it's raining all week and this is beautiful. We're loving it. Okay, so we're doing a theme kind of throughout the summer and I titled it The Messiness of the Kingdom. And um, it's, we don't usually talk about the kingdom that way, do we? You know, uh, many, many years ago, some of you know the name Francis Schaeffer. Edith Schaeffer wrote a book, his wife, and he, she talked about the church is like a tapestry. On the backside, it's all messy. You have strings hanging out that haven't been cut and things like that. But on the front side, what God sees is a beautiful picture. And so when we talk about the kingdom, often it, it transports us into the future quite a ways. And what I want to do is talk about the present aspect of the kingdom, which is messy. There's no way around it. And so we're going to spend the summer looking in parables. Last week we looked at the parable of the mustard seed and talked about how the mustard seed, it starts small and then it grows big, how God is very patient and puts up with an awful lot in a fallen world. It's messy on this side of eternity where we live today. It's messy. There's no way around it. All you got to do is, I encourage you not to, but for those of you that do, listen to either social media or mainstream media, and um, boy, are we divisive? Are we divided? Are we argumentative? Are we hostile? Um, Man, it seems like it's gotten worse in my lifetime. Worse and worse and worse. We have a good thing to say about anybody that's not like us. This is where we as a church can show the world uh, that it doesn't have to be that way. We can do it differently. So I asked the question last week, why did Jesus actually come to the earth? Why? be a lot of you that would give a lot of theological answers out there to die on the cross for our sins, all that sort of stuff. And that would all be true. But the, but the reality is he didn't come to win. How is it that 12 disciples, and I include Paul in that, how is it that over several hundred years they brought the Roman Empire to its knees? How'd that happen? If you came and uh, you got to be the Messiah, Jesus, and you wanted to bring the Roman Empire to its knees, where would you start? You'd probably start at the top, wouldn't you? Start with the Senate, the Emperor, might have a big army, that kind of stuff. But that's not what Jesus did. He came actually to lose. And we're going to see in just a minute that that's a calling that he's given to us, is to lose our life for his sake. He came to lose. That's how he won. And so the way that this happened, talked about messy, is that the gospel began to spread through the, the foundation of the empire, through the poor people, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. You see, what, what Christ brought to the scene was a reversal of what culture thinks is important. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. All the, all the attributes that culture looked down on in the Roman Empire as weak were the ones that he highlighted. And so what he did was he completely inverted the whole process of culture and raised to the top um, the values of the kingdom. We call those kingdom values. 
love one another, forgive one another, carry one another's burdens, on and on and on. Those are not things that you saw in the first century. That wasn't about power. I mean, what are the three things that drive every government? Power, sex, greed, right? Drives everything. All different types of leadership that drives it. And you don't find that in the, the kingdom. He brought a new kingdom, and the way he brought this kingdom to be, to bear, uh, to exist, was he came to lose. They didn't understand that. They couldn't understand watching their Messiah, who they had placed all their hopes in, die on the cross. And that becomes the picture for us. So when he says, Unless, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross Now, in today's world, we've never seen a crucifixion, so it's metaphorical for us. It wasn't for the people in the first century. They had seen crosses to their heart's content. We read from the the ancient historians that throughout the Roman Empire, there were places where crosses lined the road as far as the eye could see. And they'd leave the bodies hanging on the crosses until the bones disintegrated and collapsed as a warning. Don't do this. Don't break the law. They knew exactly what a cross was. They knew what crucifixion was. So when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, that meant something very different than it does to us today. The calling is very, very high. And that's what Jesus wants on the earth. You all know the Lord's prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on... Say it. As it is in... That's the Lord's Prayer. Some of you say it every week. We say it often, not every week. Do you really believe that? Do we really want his kingdom here like it is there? Hebrews makes it very clear the entrance into that kingdom involves blood and death. That's why Paul can say, I rejoice that I'm filling up the sacrifice of Christ in my body. No beating too strong, no prison too deep, no mocking too powerful. He had seen it all, done it all, experienced it all, and willingly. That's the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is there. It's a tough calling. It's a tough calling. So throughout the first century, as they began to share this news among all of the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the widows, the orphans, the poor, and they began to love them and care for each other, they began to create these Christian communities around the Roman Empire, uh, the whole system of patronage which the Roman Empire was built on. And that's real simple. Let's say I'm really wealthy and uh, some of you come to me and say, we need money. I'll say, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll bless you, but you owe your loyalty to me. Okay? So you created this hierarchy of loyalty to everybody but the one true God. Ultimately, it's to the emperor, the senate, the elite, the wealthy. And what happened was, as it began to spread throughout the empire over several hundred years, that whole system collapsed. And the Roman Empire collapsed with it. That's how powerful 
this kingdom is that Jesus brought. That's how powerful it is. So today we're going to look at another parable, the parable of the sower. Most of you have heard it. Okay. He says, this is, I'm reading the one out of Mark 4. We could go to Matthew or Luke. I just had to be in Mark. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell in the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Others fell among thorns, which grew up and they choked out the plants so that they did not even bear any grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, stop and listen. Pay attention. And then you have this... uh, little interesting verse. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Huh. They didn't even understand it. Interesting. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So this is a paradigm of the kingdom. If you can't understand this parable, you're not going to understand any of them. So this one becomes a paradigm that explains all the rest. The farmer sows the word. He has to explain it to him. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others are like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word, and once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. Sounded good when they heard it, but then when they walked away. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of life. Okay, listen to this, because this applies to some of you here. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and I would add politics. The desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times that was sown. You know what this parable is about? Why does a farmer sow seed? To get nothing back? It's not a very good farmer, is it? No. The whole reason a farmer sows seed is to get a crop, to get a harvest, to get a produce. That's the whole reason. You see what this parable is about, is about um, living out the gospel. That's what it is. This is a lesson in spiritual fruit bearing. Because that's the reason why you plant seed have a harvest so what you have here is you have a set you have a dichotomy between the ones that for whatever reason he gets three options never produce anything and then you have ones who produce a lot 
a ton. Not only do they produce a lot, but actually this is a picture of an overflowing, abundant blessing of the Lord. You know, we just finished a, a series in our church in the Minor Prophets, and the last one chronologically, as well as in the canon, is Malachi. And there we looked at God's genuine love for his people, the very last thing he says, and then he gets quiet for over 400 years until Jesus comes. He gets quiet. And what does God say in the middle of that? You're robbing me. And they go, how on earth are we robbing me? Robbing? Are we robbing you? You're not giving your tithes and offerings. Do you know what a tithe and offering is? It's real popular, real common in the church to uh, talk about it's a good starting place. I happen to not agree with that. Um, because here's the way a tithe worked in the Hebrew scriptures in ancient Israel. You had to give three tithes. tithes met, a tithe meant 10%. Okay? Two tithes you gave every year. And it wasn't on your income. It was on everything you owned. Everything. So you add up all your IRAs, your properties that you own, your cars, your vehicles, your camels, your cows, if you happen to have those, and goats and all that. And you add it all up and you calculate the value and you give a tenth to that to the Lord. You do two of those a year. That's 20% of your total assets, including your income. I'd love to have, how many of you do that? Maybe I should ask, how many of you tithe? And then let's say, do you really tithe? And then there's a third tithe, which you gave every three years, uh, that went into the temple treasury to help the poor. So you give basically 23 and a third percent of everything you own, not how much money you make, everything you own. They didn't like to do that. And God says, go ahead. Give all the tithe and see if I don't bless you so much that your storehouses will be overflowing. 2 Corinthians 9, the New Testament version of that. The tithe is never mentioned in the New Testament. It's far worse than that. Give everything you have. See, you own nothing. Nothing belongs to you. You're a steward not an owner. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So what does the New Testament say? Well, 2 Corinthians 9. Using the same analogy of the sower, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows generously will reap generously. Okay, that makes sense. I was never a farmer. I grew up on the beach. Didn't know much about farming, but it makes sense. You put a lot of seed in the ground, you get a big harvest. You put a little bit of seed, you get a little harvest. And then he goes on and Paul says, and he says, God who supplies seed to the sower is able to replenish your seed and multiply it. wonder how many of you believe that and multiply it. Some of you have heard this story when I was a brand new Christian in the Navy, just got transferred to San Diego, brand new Christian, and I... Uh, went to a Bible study and this older woman was leading it and she's in this very rich house overlooking the Pacific. I won't ever forget it. She's with the Lord now, I'm sure, because uh, she was in her upper 70s then. And, um, and she was teaching on this principle and she said, you can't outgive God. You just can't. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, being a young guy, how much do you give? I probably wouldn't have said that with what I know today, but that's okay. She was real sweet. How much do you give? And she said, I now give 99%. She said, every year I increase it 1%. Nancy and I have tried to do that. 
increase it 1%. And I said, you own this incredible house looking over the ocean. I, she said, I know, that's the 1%. <laughs> she said, and I give it all away and I can't get rid of it. You see, prosperity gospel is awful close because they miss out on the last statement. The one, the, the God who is able to supply seed to the sower, that's you, is able to replenish it and multiply it. And that's where they stop, to make you rich. But you know what the next verse says? So that you will be able to be even more generous. That's what it says. And you see, these principles are consistent all throughout here. So he uses the same illustration in this parable right here to capture our hearts that once we enter the kingdom as Christians, then the questions we should be asking is, what does our fruit look like? What does it look like? I can't answer that for you. I can only answer it for me. But I tell you what, for over 40 years, I've, I've taken that question seriously and prayed about it. Prayed about it often, every day. Lord, help me to be faithful to you today. Help me to bring honor to your name. Just use me to love people. So this raises the question of um, what does it look like? What is this new model this kingdom actually look like. But first, I'm going to give you a warning. Okay? And it's just paying, it's worth paying close attention in case you find yourself. This is out of Matthew. Believing correctly is not the right thing. Not the answer. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I tell them plainly, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You see, it doesn't matter how much wealth you accumulate. It doesn't matter how much prestige you have. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It'll be gone one day. One of the things I've learned in my 10 years here, having lots of conversations with our men and women who retire, is it is a real struggle to move from success, which is defined by their, their job setting, corporate world or whatever, to significance. That's a really hard transition to, to make. Because for most of our lives, we don't define our success in terms of the kingdom, do we? Let's be honest, we don't. It's taken a lifestyle of really pushing to even get close to that in my own mind. I still naturally revert to how much money do I have? How, you know, what have I accomplished? All of that. Some of you know I went to counseling many years ago and I uh, felt like an avalanche had hit me uh, on the head. A lot of things had happened. And so the counselor, good man, Christian, clinical psychologist, he said, so tell me, who's Jim Howard? And I told him all my accomplishments. I got done and he said, and I got a lot. And he goes, that's really good if I'd asked you what you'd accomplish. That's not what I asked you. I asked, who's Jim Howard? And I said, you know, I don't know. I've lost track of that. And he said, yeah, 
That's what we need to work on. At the end of the counseling, uh, I had decided to resign my position at Denver Seminary at the end of the counseling. And um, so I walked into his office, and uh, I really wanted to get into church ministry. Um, I told my boss, the president, I handed in my resignation and said I didn't get a PhD to do all this stuff. I really want to get back in the trenches with people. So I walked into the counselor's office and I said, I resigned my position today. And he started laughing. He goes, you did? And I go, yeah. He goes, why? And I said, it's not Jim Howard. And he stood up, shook my hand, said, we're done. You figured it out. Who are you? Where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself in this kingdom which is growing slowly over time? I mean, I started with 12. There's over, I heard there's over 2 billion Christians in the world now. Whatever the number is, it doesn't matter. It's just much bigger than 12, okay? And we're called to live in a spiritual world, but the reality is we live in a natural world that's fallen. I got a lot of issues, okay? A whole lot of issues. And yet we're called to live over here. That's what this parable is about. And we're not very good at living over here I mean, living here, but in this context. That's hard to do. It's really hard. There's nothing easy about it. But the key to this is being right is not enough. Or as James says, faith without works is dead. It's not faith. True faith compels you. True faith, you can't help it. You want to get out and love people, and you want to get out, and you want to use, I mean, the definition of greed is real simple, okay? God has blessed all of you, or you wouldn't be here. You either live here or you're on vacation, so you got some assets, all right? When you look at all your assets, do you think this way? Ooh, this is mine. I got to protect it. Or do you think God gave me this so I can bless everybody around me? One is greed, one is generosity, Sometimes when we take our, our offering, I always say, thanks for being generous. And sometimes I say, I don't really know if you're generous or not. That's between you and the Lord. You could be making 100 million bucks and giving us 100 bucks. That's greed, you know? I don't know the answer to that. That's between you and the Lord. You gotta look in the mirror for that one. But where do you find your heart? Because the spiritual world, the kingdom, is the, is the growing of the heart. That's what it is. It's the growing of a heart that God wants in this fallen world. That's really what it is. So, what does that mean? Well, you heard him read this morning. I love John 13. He just finished washing their feet. He said, you don't really understand what I'm doing now, but you will when the Spirit comes. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Nothing new about that. It's all right out of Leviticus. That's not a new command. What made it new? A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. So picture that that's the last night before he's executed, before he's put upon the cross. So picture the conversation. I don't know if it happened this way, but I like to play games with scripture a little bit. So as I have loved you. So uh, let's see. Matthew, what were you doing when I found you? Uh, Sorry, Lord. I was a tax collector extorting and stealing money from everybody. Yeah, and I came and loved you anyway, didn't I? How about you, Nathaniel? What were you doing? Oh, sorry, Lord. I didn't mean to diss your hometown when I said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I didn't even believe in you. Boy, was I wrong. I mean, I wonder what it would be like to go down all the disciples and say, what were you like when I found you? What were you like when he found you? 
New commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have the right view of Roe versus Wade. If you're a Republican, by this everyone will know you're my disciples if you're a Democrat. By this everyone will know you're my disciples if you follow President Biden, if you follow President Trump. You fill in the blank. That's not what it says, is it? You see, none of those people are our enemies. I've said repeatedly, the school board is not our enemy. Paul says in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers behind it that produce things that maybe we don't agree with. But it's not the school board. Some of you have a little repenting to do. You see, when he came, for the first 300 years, I've been reading the Apostolic Fathers, the first 200 years, we don't have a record that they protested anything. Anything. When the, when the Pharisees went to Jesus and they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They, they were arguing you shouldn't pay taxes. Why? Because Caesar was funding euthanasia, infanticide, homosexuality, pluralism, on and on and on, all of these things, okay? Abortion. That was all being funded by the, by the Roman Empire. What did Jesus say? He said, give me a coin. Who's, who's a, whose image is on there? Caesar. He said, and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You know what that says? That's called compromise for the sake of the gospel. He didn't agree with it. But he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's compromise for the sake of the gospel. That's what that is. In other words, it's above our pay grade. I pray for the Supreme Court, and I vote my conscience, and I encourage all of you to do that, but I don't lose an ounce of sleep over the decisions made above my head. Not one. They're not our enemy. This is what it's like in the kingdom. Over here in the natural world, they are our enemy, but not over here where we live. So, Jesus, every command that he gives from here on out is related to that one command to love people and to love them well. Uh, You look in uh, Mark 10, a very famous verse in Mark 10. Let's see here, where am I? Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be your slave of all. Tim Sealing, our elder chair, he and I have talked, and we've said many times, we are the slave of the church. We're the slaves. Must become the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to lose. That's how he won. That's how he won. You back up to chapter 8 in Mark. Verse 34, here's what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it? 
for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit the soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Do you think he's joking? This isn't a joke. That's why I've said, don't ever, ever be ashamed to tell people that you're a Christian and you follow Jesus. All they know is a stereotype. They don't really know what that means. And I'll be honest with you, it's gotten to the point now when I talk to strangers, which I do all the time about Jesus, bars, coffee shops, wherever I happen to be, you know, I say, let's just set aside the stereotypes for a moment. Not because they're not true, they are true. Let's be honest. The stereotype about the church in America is true. It just shouldn't be. You do that, I guarantee you've got an open door to talk. You really do. So every application, everything Jesus teaches, every command is an application to love one another as I have loved you. And wherever you are, when he found you, it wasn't a very good place. And he wasn't afraid to go after you. He wasn't afraid to pursue you. He's not ashamed of you. That's why we're getting ready to celebrate communion together. When he says, remember me. Because he remembered us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. One day, this kingdom and this kingdom will merge. And you know what? All the evil and the corruption will be gone. It'll be done. Emmanuel. He wanted to come live with us. That's what's behind the parable of the sower. Is it messy? Yeah, it's messy. Is it hard to love your enemies? Yeah, it's hard to love your enemies. Is it hard to love those who forgive you? I mean, that you have to forgive, that do harm to you? Yeah, it's really hard. It's easy to forgive people that say, I'm sorry. That's easy. But that's not what Paul says in Ephesians. Forgive because Jesus has already forgiven you. Already. That's why we do it. Because every human is worthy of love and forgiveness. Every single one. So, do you believe that? For our members, for those of you that are visitors, just put it in the context of your church, for our visitors, I mean, our members, do you really believe that we as a church can turn Summit County on its head? Do you really believe that? I do. That's why I gave my life to the ministry full time, to make a difference. It is doable. And it starts by loving sacrificially, giving your heart to those around you, whether they are good to you or not. I'm so glad Jesus didn't wait for me to become good. He found me at the darkest time of my life. And love me anyway. Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible and sacrificial love. 
Thank you that your love is unending. Your love is generous. Your love is kind. Your love is patient. Boy, have I experienced that. Your love overlooks what we do. Your love pursues, never gives up, never gives up. Your love is powerful. It forgives us, engages us, cares for us. Thank you, Lord. I know that some people here today are probably in trouble for some reason or other. Uh, And they need to feel that love. 